Welcome to the Pastor Nick Santo podcast, a podcast designed to help you live closer to Jesus. We hope that God uses it to encourage and empower you in his plan for your life. Now let's get into today's content. Amen. I want to read the first seven verses as we begin. It tells us here in verse one, Solomon writes, and he says, Remember now your creator in the days of your youth, while the evil days come not, nor the years draw near when you shall say, I have no pleasure in them. While the sun or the light or the moon or the stars be not darkened, nor the clouds return after the rain, in the day when the keepers of the house shall tremble and the strong men shall bow themselves and the grinders cease because they are few, and those that look out of the windows be darkened. And the doors shall be shut in the streets when the sound of the grinding is low. And he shall rise up at the voice of the bird, and all the daughters of music shall be brought low. And when they shall be afraid of all that which is high, and fear shall be in the way, and the almond tree shall flourish, and the grasshopper shall be a burden, and desire shall fail, because man goes to his long home, and the mourners go about in the streets." Or ever the silver cord be loosed, or the golden bowl be broken, or the pitcher be broken at the fountain, or the wheel broken at the cistern, then shall dust return to the earth as it was, and the spirit shall return unto God who gave it. And one more, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. So uh, one of my early earliest memories of life um, is we would travel from Rochester to Buffalo uh, on holidays and special occasions, and we would visit my grandmother, my maternal grandmother. And my mom came from a large family. She was one of seven. And uh, one of the things that they would do, it seemed like they would do this every time we'd go, although I'm sure it wasn't quite that frequently, is that all of my aunts would gather in the main living room and they would watch Anne of Green Gables. And it would be this huge thing, you know, and, and they would be swooning over Gilbert Blythe and, you know, and commenting on Matthew Cuthbert and talking about, you know, and all these things. And it was just this big deal. And they would get giddy and they would have their tissues and, and all, you know, and, and it was kind of an eye roller for me, you know, like who cares, right? Anne of Green Gables. And I wanted to be with my rowdy uncles downstairs watching football and, you know, throwing darts and doing other things that the, the, the you know, the wives and mothers wouldn't approve of, you know. And so they would be doing that, and, and, and I used to just think that was the stupidest thing, you know, Anne of Green Gables. Well, now I have a bunch of kids and myself, and I have a wife, and I have girls, and one of the things that they like to do sometimes is watch Anne of Green Gables, and I find that my attitude towards Anne as an adult is much different than it was uh, as a child, you know, and, and, and you know, I, I'm not going to tell you that I shed a tear or anything or get emotionally wrapped up in it, but I certainly can appreciate that six to eight hour saga a little bit more as an adult than I did when I was a child. One of the things that I really do uh, appreciate about that work, that film, is the way the producers and really the way the, the, the main actress, Megan Follows, who plays uh, Anne, uh, one of the things that they captured so well was the dispositional transition between childhood and adulthood. And so, like, as a child, she had this optimism and this uh, wonder, this relentless uh, fervor for life, you know, that was just unstoppable, you know, and, and it came across so well. But as she ages over the six to eight hours of the saga and goes from child to teenager to young adult and then to uh, married woman, 
they did an amazing way of portraying her uh, of kind of being sunburned with the cynicism of life, if you would. She was still Anne, but you could tell that she had matured through adulthood and, and some of that optimism had kind of been knocked off, you know, not diminished completely, but it wasn't there like it was. And I, I just remember catching that because I was kind of feeling that. I kind of had sensed that happen in my own life, and I noticed it. I just saw that they did this, and, and it's true. And it's kind of what Solomon is talking about here in his kind of introduction to his conclusion He's talking about this transition that happens between the wonder of childhood and the cynicism of adulthood and kind of how life, in a sense, has the ability to knock the hope out of a human being. And I don't think that there's a greater description that's encapsulated in as few words as what Solomon does here in these eight verses to kind of talk about how that happens. He talks about the days of youth and how those days can unfold into days where there's no longer a pleasantness to it. There's a progression of it in this. And so he calls them evil days in verse 1. And then he gives the description of these evil days that can kind of take hope out of a human life. And he really describes it um, by six things. He says, first of all, he talks about the sun and the light and the moon and the stars no longer giving their light. And so what he's talking about there is he's talking about a, a human life and how it can come into a season or a time where there's a, a seeming lack of direction, where you kind of feel like all of a sudden, you know, your life was on a certain trajectory and you kind of knew where you were going, you knew why you existed, you had somewhat of a plan but one day you can wake up and kind of find yourself in a place where you don't really know where you are, you're not sure how you got there, and you're absolutely unsure of where you're going. Whenever you read about these things in the Bible, you read about the sun, the light, the moon, and the stars, they are primarily instruments of direction in terms of the context of how they're used in the Bible. In Psalm 19, those things are used as an illustration of direction. We read of the Apostle Paul when he was trying to figure out how to get where he was going. In Acts 27, I think it's right around verse 10, he says that when we saw neither sun nor moon nor stars for 14 days, we lost all hope that we should be saved. It was sun and moon and stars are the ways that you navigate and determine where you are when you're out at sea. And, and so there was no direction at all in his life at that time. And Solomon is bringing that forth and saying, hey, you will come at times and seasons to a place where you don't know how you got where you are and you don't know how you're going to get out of the place that you're in. And that has an effect upon humanity. He calls it evil days. He also comments there, same verse, about the days of what we would call incessant affliction. He said, when the clouds come right after the rain. And the idea behind that is that you just went through a storm, you just survived a flood, and then the next day after it's over, you wake up and the sky is clouding over again. And there are seasons that we go through in life where it seems like as soon as we get back up, there's something right there to knock us right back down. And there's a season, it seems, of every adult life where we go through that time where it's like, how is this possible that things can be this supernaturally difficult in my life? 
He talks also, also about days of violence and political unrest. When he says in verse 3, he says that the days when the keepers of the house will tremble and the strong men will bow themselves and the grinders will cease because they are few and those that look out of the windows be darkened and the doors shall be shut in the streets and the sound of grinding is low and he shall rise up at the voice of a bird, meaning that people are fearful at the simplest things and all the daughters of music shall be brought low. In other words, days where outwardly in society things are so dismal and dark that it seems like there's just no hope and there's no joy in the hearts, in the minds, in the lives of people. And it's a reality that we go through seasons like that. Also, he says, fifthly, uh, it, actually, there's another one there that I missed. It's the days of spiritual leanness in verse 3 where it talks about the keepers of the house that will tremble and the strong men bowing themselves. Basically, it's speaking about even when you come to church, sometimes it seems like there's the word going forth and everybody else is seeming to maybe hear something, but you're not. You know, it's just a time when it almost seems like even God is silent in your life. He talks also about days when the systems that you relied upon begin to break down. He says in verse 6, he talks about the silver cord being loosed and the golden bowl being broken. I mean, when I read that, it, it immediately made me think of my parents. You know, it's kind of like the silver cord and the golden bowl. You know, my mom being the silver cord, the kind of that strand that's always there, that reliable force, that that arm that I can lean on, that if all else fails, I can hold on to that. But there comes that time in our life when even that, we lose our parents and we say goodbye. My dad, the golden bowl. You know, dad, could you help? You know, could you spill out a little bit, you know? But even that, it comes to a point where it fails. And then it says again there in verse 6, it says that the wheel is broken at the cistern. So the cistern is the symbol of provision. So, you know, the idea is that the place where you get what you need, but the wheel is broken. So you lose a job or you lose access to your uh, financial um, sustenance, you know. And, and so basically, like, everything that can happen over the progression of a lifespan that knocks the hope of youth out of a person. That's what Solomon is describing very poetically here in these verses. He's saying basically, this is what you can expect from life under the sun. That hope and optimism of youth is slowly going to be sunburned with the cynicism of reality as you go through the things that cause pain in life. Now, if you were to encapsulate all of this into a single phrase or a single concept, it would be what the Bible calls the hope of this world. The hope of this world. And the hope of this world is a hope that promises something, but it can never quite deliver on what it promises. Or if it does, even for a season, it leaves bankruptcy on the other side of it because you can't hold on to or even keep the thing that you've obtained 
I remember as a child, I was, I was a dreamer. I mean, they talk about different personalities and different types of, uh, you, you know, people. And I was a dreamer, man. I, I just had so much ambition as a child. When I was five years old, I remember I would tell my parents, when I grow up, I'm going to be an astronaut. I'm going to be a mountain climber. I'm going to be a scuba diver. You know, and th- those were real things like that, that were tucked inside of me. I wanted to be a police officer because I wanted to carry a big gun and, and you know, uh, institute justice and all that. You know, that, that was me from the time that I was a child. And then as I grew through the years, new interests came and there was new things that I wanted to do. I wanted to be a professional baseball player and a professional football player. And I wanted to be huge in sports. And I would go out in the backyard of our home and, you know, I would throw myself passes, you know, and just pretend that I was winning the Super Bowl and, you know, go through all these kind of things. And I had this hope inside of me that something of all of these dreams and ambitions would come true. But then as time goes by, those hopes fade. You realize as you cross the lines of your prime that some of those things that you dreamed, the ship on those things has sailed and they're never going to come to pass. That's what the hope of this world always does. It starts high And then it diminishes with time as we realize that those hopes aren't ever going to materialize. They're never going to be realized. Now, that doesn't mean we don't do anything or accomplish any of our goals. Obviously, we do. But the general direction of worldly hope is that it's a fading hope. And that's what Solomon is describing here as he comes to his conclusion of all of the vanity that he's carefully described over the last 11 chapters. But he tells us that the solution to that or the answer that we have towards that is singular and it's in verse 1 and it really is the answer to the question of the entire book, which is what is the purpose of life? And his answer to that fading hope and the darkness of the days that we go through in this life is he says, remember now your creator in your youth or in the days of your youth before the evil days come. Remember now your creator in the days of your youth. In other words, here's the call of God. Here's the answer to the purpose of life. Yes, you're going to go through all of these things. But if you have your hand upon the one who formed you, and the one who made this life, and the one who redeemed you, then you're going to go through all of these things with the upper hand. You're not going to be insulated from going through these things, but you're going to have the upper hand when you go through these things. See, the Bible does not promise us for one moment that because we're saved or because we belong to God, that that means we're not going to go through difficult days. In other words, or I mean, in Beyond that, over and above that, the Bible promises that we are going to go through dark days and difficult times. Jesus declared emphatically, and he said that in this world, you will have tribulation. Jesus said emphatically, he said that the rain falls upon the just and the unjust alike. He said that the sun shines on the just and the unjust alike. And both of those things can be either good or bad. Rain can be good or bad. The sun can be good or bad, depending on where you are in relation to it or position to it. And basically what Jesus was saying is that, listen, there's going to be difficulty that comes to you in your life. 
The Apostle Paul, in Ephesians chapter 6, he told us to put on the armor of God so that we would be able to stand in the evil day. The same thing that Solomon calls it in Ecclesiastes 12 here, is that we're going to go through these things. We can't avoid it. There's no way around it. I love a verse in the book of Job in chapter 10 somewhere. It says that as surely as sparks fly upward, surely man is born to trouble. There's going to be difficulty in our lives. But we have the choice of whether or not we're going to go through that difficulty in blindness and let it just strip away our hope and not just sunburn us, but destroy us and make us cynical and bitter and lost. Or we can come to know God in the days of our youth and we can embrace these things as they are and we can go through them with a total different set of equipment. So what do you have when you have Jesus in your youth? Well, you go through the same things, but you go through it with a sense of identity. Instead of having all of that stripped away and trying to figure out who you are in a world that takes away hope, you go into an evil day already knowing who you are. I'm a child of the living God. He made me. He formed me in the mother's womb. He gave me my personality. He's authored my purpose, and he's going to bring me forth forward to my destiny. And I'm going into a difficult day knowing who I am. I have the upper hand. I go into it with a sense of destiny that I already know where I'm going to be, that I wasn't made for this world. I was made for something higher. And come what may in this life, it is all authored and formed and held in the hand of a God who is shaping and preparing me for something that's already set, reserved in heaven that no one can take away. There's a sense of destiny. There's a sense of validation because I know that I've been approved of him, that as I go through the tragedy of the world, I'm not grasping for validation from any source that it can come from while I'm languishing under the difficulty of the days. I've got my validation from God. So it doesn't matter how many likes I have or how many followers I have, or if people approve of what I'm doing, I'm approved by God. I was reading earlier today the verse, and I think it's Isaiah 53, verse 7, somewhere around there, where God just says that he is the one who comforts us, and who are we that we should be afraid of a man that will die? He says, your validation comes in the fact that I have chosen you in my son from the foundation of the world, and I've set my love upon you because I love you. So we go through life with a sense of validation. We go through life with a source of satisfaction, that he's the one that fills all things, that we don't get fill our cup or fill our heart or our life through what this world can give to us in its empty promises, but our cup is filled at the well of his salvation, that my satisfaction comes from God. And that way, when the world takes something from me, it's really taken nothing from me because it can't take the thing that fills me ultimately. He promises to be the well of life. I come into life with a sense of having answers. He's given me his word and he's given me his Holy Spirit. So anytime there's a question that comes concerning God or concerning myself or concerning the world or life or concerning something that needs truth applied to it or be interpreted in the light of truth, God has given me his word and his spirit. And so I'm coming into the evil day and the evil time equipped to interpret what's going on in front of me and equipped to walk through it without being taken out by it. And I go through life with an anchor, like it says in Hebrews chapter 6, where it says that the hope that he gives us is a hope that we have as an anchor for our soul. That when the winds come and the difficult days come and they try to take me out, 
I'm anchored and the silver cord might break, but the golden cord of Jesus Christ never breaks. And I'm sustained by him. And when I go into the days of evil, having already settled that I know my creator, that I know my God, then I have the ability or at least the opportunity to avoid a lot of painful things. Because I have a shepherd who guides me and keeps me from scarring or ruining my life with vain pursuits and things that ultimately will leave me wounded and not built up. See, that's where Solomon failed in his pursuit of trying to find life in all the things that he tried to find life in. He thought it would fill him to be rich or to be paired up with many, many partners or to have an abundance of real estate or projects or whatever else that it was. But every one of those things took a toll on him and they sowed seeds in his heart that he wasn't then able to control. And those seeds germinated into the things that destroyed him and took him down. But when you and I have Jesus Christ, we have a shepherd that keeps us from those things. Sometimes I talk to people and they say, why doesn't God give me more money? Why doesn't God set me up in a better situation or with better circumstances? Do you know why? Because he knows what we would do if we had that money or we were in those circumstances or those situations. And as a faithful shepherd, he's often protecting us from ourselves. Go figure it. But he loves us. See, we don't have a free pass out of the difficult days. They're going to come. But the answer is to know God as soon as possible. Because he's the one that brings us through and sustains us in it. And you know what that's called in the Bible? It's called a living hope. In 1 Peter chapter, chapter 1, verse 3, the Apostle Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to His abundant mercy has begotten us again, that means we've been born again, listen, unto a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Do you know that the hope that God gives, it's not a fading hope, but it's a hope that goes brighter every day. The hope of Christ being formed in me. The hope of the old man with its affections and its lusts being crucified and torn down. The hope of my eternal inheritance that's reserved in heaven that no one can take from me. The hope of seeing my God face to face. The hope of being finally changed and putting away this world. That hope is a hope that grows. It gets brighter and brighter the closer I get. It doesn't fade and grow older and older. And so God takes away the hope that fades and he replaces it with a hope that grows, with the living hope that goes on forever. And then when the evil day comes, it becomes my glory and not my tragedy. It says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16, it says, For which cause we faint not, Paul says, because though our outward man is perishing, yet our inward man is renewed day by day, while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are unseen. He says, for our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us and working in us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. And so even when the evil day comes to the person that knows God, it's not something that takes us backwards. It's something that propels us forward. Though our outward man perish, our inward man is renewed. So the weaker we get in this world, the stronger we get in the hope of what's to come. And that's the glory of this grace, this calling that we have. 
And so he says, remember now your creator in the days of your youth. What is it to live successfully or with purpose in this life under the sun? It's to know God. He's going to come back to that at the end of the chapter. But we have a little break from context here, which is kind of ironic because of what it says, and you'll understand why in a minute. But in verses 9 all the way through 12, Solomon kind of gives to us a little bit of an epilogue here. He kind of inserts a little biographical statement about himself and about what his passion was that doesn't really seem to fit with the context, but we'll come back to it. But I actually love this little epilogue here because it helps me. It's really the description of a wise preacher. And there probably isn't a better description in all of the universe of what it means to be a preacher than what Solomon says here in these words. So just notice what he says about himself for a minute. And if you ever want to, you know, evaluate the quality of a preacher, here's your rubric, what you can hold up what you're hearing against. He says this, and he says, And moreover, because the preacher was wise, he still taught the people knowledge Yea, he gave good heed, and he sought out, and he set in order many proverbs. The preacher sought to find out acceptable words, and that which was written was upright, even words of truth. And so he defines his job, the preacher's job, as one who teaches the people knowledge. That's what a wise preacher will set forth to do, is to teach people knowledge, things necessary for life. And then he says that he does this in three ways. First of all, it says that they give good heed. It says in verse 9, because he was wise, he gave good heed. And what that means is that the good preacher is always paying attention to what's going on around him, always observing and always processing everything that's happening for the sake of adding depths to the things that he's going to share with people or she. Second, it says that he sought out, not only did he give heed, but he sought out and set order in order many proverbs. So he was searching constantly for things and content to be able to share with people. Um, we have a saying amongst ourselves, um, the ABCs of preaching. And the ABCs of preaching are always be collecting always be connecting and always be collaborating. You know, you're always collecting what, you know, what you're seeing. You're always connecting it to the word of God and to situations in people's lives. And then you're always collaborating, sharing with people, talking, bouncing ideas off so that you're able then to do the next thing, which is the third thing. He says, setting in order many proverbs. And the idea there is simplifying, simplifying, boiling down concepts, boiling down uh, truth, boiling everything down and bringing it to a concentrated place where you can say the most with the least amount of words. And that's exactly what a proverb is. A proverb is a concentrated, explosive, memorable statement that you can pick apart and you could literally write a volume of books by unfolding a single statement. And, and he says that that's what the wise preacher does is it takes truth and simplifies it to the point where you can say the most in the least amount of words. Uh, we see Jesus doing this all the time. We call these things sticky statements. You know, and Jesus was the king of sticky statements. Bobby, Pastor Bobby calls them ditties. You know, just having the, the little ditty that is, oh yeah, that stuck. That was there. It's a sticky statement. 
And Jesus used these paradoxically in the Sermon on the Mount. All of the Beatitudes were sticky statements, paradoxical things. Blessed are the humble. Happy are the poor in spirit. You know, that doesn't make sense. It sticks. I remember it because it doesn't make sense. It's paradoxical. Jesus also used exaggerated principles. Remember when he said, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing? You know, it's kind of like, wait, what does that mean? You know, that's impossible, but it illustrates a point. You know, it's just kind of a sticky phrase that we remember because it doesn't make sense. We think about it and we go, oh, yeah, now I get it. You know, he used the simplistically profound. Where he said, remember when Jesus said that where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It's just a poignant phrase that when we hear it, we say, oh, that's so simple, and yet it's so huge, it's profound, and I'm going to remember that. You know, that's going to be something that's going to guide me through my life, you know. Uh, Other ways that, sticky phrases, little proverbs, sometimes uh, they're used linguistically. Now, we don't really have examples of Jesus doing that because we don't have the language that he used, but sometimes when you hear something poetic that's simply put in a way that you can remember it. You know, like I heard one recently that there's no win in comparison. You know, that's good. It's, it's, it's very lame, right? But you remember that. You know, you know that comparing yourself with others, not a good idea. There's no win. Joel Olstein, I, I hate to even say that name, but he said, he said something. I remember it. He said, the me I see is the me I'll be, you know. I don't even know if that's true, but it, it's stuck. It's a sticky sentence, you know. But here's the idea, and this is what Solomon did, is that he took truth, he boiled it down to its most simple form, and then he put it forth in a way that people would remember it and it would guide them. And he says that he sought out to find acceptable words. He was obsessing over the words and phrases that he would use in his message in order to get them just right to have maximum impact. And boy, I can tell you, that is what we do. We obsess about simple things. Do I say incessant affliction or do I say perpetual perturbance? I don't want to sound stupid, but I want it to be memorable. And this is just what happens sometimes. We, we obsess about the phrases because we want to make the greatest impact with our message, with our sermon. And so he sought to find out its acceptable words. And then he says, finally, that that which was written was up right, meaning that he tested it. He didn't just take something that sounded good and give it forth because it sounded good, but the word was upright, meaning it stood up when you held it against truth and you held it against life. It wasn't just platitude. It was poignant. It was powerful. And so uh, it stands up on his own. And so basically that's what he did. Now, what's the result? If, If preaching is done right, What's the result? He says in verse 11, he says, the words of the wise are as goads and as nails fastened by the masters of assemblies, which are given from one shepherd. Now, what is a goad? A goad is a sharpened instrument that's used to keep a mule or a beast of burden moving in the direction that it's supposed to go. So if you have a stubborn ox or a stubborn donkey, you put goads on the left hand or the right hand, and when it starts veering off course, the goad would be instituted, and and then that donkey, whatever, would, you know, I'm not supposed to go that way, and they would move then in the direction that they were supposed to go. And Solomon says that a good sermon is going to stick in your life, in your heart, in such a way 
that when you veer off to one side, those words are going to come back and they're going to be like goads that are going to push you in the right direction that you're supposed to go. One of the best compliments that you could ever give a preacher is when you tell them something that they said at some point that is sticking with you, that is keeping you in the right path. That's what the words of the wise do. They're like goads. He says they're also like nails that are set. And I love that he uses that illustration because Charles Spurgeon, who is credited as being one of the greatest preachers, at least of the last few generations, he has a a quote that I never forgot. It's from lectures to my students. And he said this, and I've tried to use this as, and I use the word try. He said this. He said that we must, in these times, say a great deal in a few words. Not too much, nor with too much amplification. And then he says this. One thought fixed on the mind will be better than 50 thoughts made to flit across the ear. One ten-penny nail driven home and clinched will be more useful than a score of tin tacks loosely fixed to be pulled out again in an hour. And isn't that true? I mean, I find that to be like when, 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 when I hear a sermon that is just like one thought that is firmly fixed, surrounded in truth from the text, and then driven home by application of the Holy Spirit in my life. I find that to be much more useful than a series of blasted thoughts that I can't remember much later on. And I say I try to live by that because I think I fail more often than I succeed. But he says, Solomon does, that it's like a nail that's fixed by the master of assemblies. And then he said, which are given from one shepherd. And the idea is that the results speak for themselves. Do you know what I consider a good sermon? At least, you know, as, as someone who hears sermons, when I hear a good sermon, it's a sermon that flips me upside down when I hear it. And then it keeps coming back into my mind for a couple days. When that happens, I'm like, man, that was good. Lord, thank you for for doing that in my life. I needed that good word. And so Solomon kind of describes his ministry. And if you feel called to ministry, man, study those verses right there. Because that's preaching in a nutshell. Now, that's about like one-tenth of the call. (laughs) But it's an important one-tenth, you know. And so Solomon gives his uh, two cents on preaching in those verses. And now he closes the book. He closes the whole matter and he gives us the answer to the question that we've had since the beginning. What is the whole purpose of life? In verse 13, he said, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. He says, fear God and keep his commandments for this is the whole duty of man. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. This is the conclusion of the whole matter. It's the whole duty of man. About 350 years ago, there was a a group of a couple of hundred theologians that gathered together in Westminster in England, and they wanted to take all of the truths of the entire Bible and simplify and summarize them into uh, somewhat of a catechism. The result of that Uh, seven-year process was kind of what's known today as the Westminster Catechism. And it was something that was designed for two purposes. One was to train people for ministry, and that was kind of the greater catechism. But then there was the lesser one, the simpler one, which was designed for every Christian just to really understand the faith, the tenets of the faith, and what we stand for as Christians. 
And so that work that was designed for each Christian, each child of God to really understand, what it consisted of was 107 questions that were then answered in the catechism and that were meant for discussion, meditation, you know, thought and all this. And and number one, the number one question of those 107 was, what is the whole purpose of man? What is the whole reason that, that man was made, the whole duty, kind of the question that Solomon asks right here? And the answer, which you've probably all heard, if you've ever heard sermons or you've been around for a little while, and the answer is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That was the answer that, that, that was given to that question, that the whole purpose of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And that was a very calculated answer because if you think about it for a minute, it almost seems that those two things, glorifying God and enjoying him forever, that those two things don't belong together. It, it almost seems that piety, glorifying God, and enjoying him, pleasure, that piety and pleasure don't go in the same thing. They don't, they don't belong together. That if I'm going to please God, then that means I'm going to live a life of ministry. And if I'm going to live for pleasure, then I'm certainly not going to be pious because pleasure is so often so contrary to what my nature is. But the answer really is the marrying of those two things. That the purpose of life is found in glorifying him, that is bringing my life under his lordship and his banner, coming into alignment and allegiance with his truth and his way and his call, and in the process coming to know him personally in a way where I enjoy him and I enjoy life because his ways are right and he's the author of it. And what Solomon is essentially saying is this, is that you can live for anything that your heart desires to. You can go down any path that you choose and you can try to find satisfaction in life in anything that this world can offer. But the only place where it's ultimately going to be found is when you come into a relationship with the living God where you say, God, I want your ways. I want your counsel and your truth. I want your spirit and your love. I want your satisfaction and what you say is right. I want that to be my life. And when by his spirit I begin to walk, empowered by him in the path that he's laid out, then I begin to experience what life is all about. And in the process, I'm glorifying him because I'm exemplifying his ways and submitting to his word. And I'm enjoying him because I'm walking in the very intent and purpose for what my life is called for, what I've been created for. And so the purpose of life is to know him. The purpose of life is to walk with him and be filled with him and be satisfied by him. That's what he intended for us when he made us. You say, well, how in the world do I get there? What is the path to that purpose? Because I find myself floundering and wavering and not set in that place. I believe he gives the answer to that question in the closing verse of the book. He says this, For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. You say that's kind of an odd way to end the book. Why does he choose that as his closing thought in connection with the purpose of knowing God. Here's why. Because if you want to walk the straightest path possible, if you want to get where God has destined you to be in the fewest amount of steps, then the way to do that is to live life backwards. 
I was listening recently to an interview with a man named Bob Goff. And if you've never heard of Bob Goff, he's an amazing human being. The only thing I don't like about Bob Goff is that he's a terrible role model because you will never, ever, ever measure up. You'll never be able to duplicate his life. But one of the questions that was asked to Bob Goff when, when, uh, when he was being interviewed about his life, he was asked, how do you maintain your inspiration and how do you keep going? How do you stay productive and, and just keep abounding in everything that you do? And his answer was amazing. He says this. He said, know what I do. He says is that he, or what you should do. He says that you should know who you're becoming and then let that person inform who you are. He said, know who you're becoming and then let that person inform who you are. And he says, so what I do frequently is that I just project myself 10 years into the future. I'm this old. In 10 years, I'm going to be this old. And what will I say when I'm that old to the version of me that is here today that's this old? And he says, and that just helps me. And I, and I, I listened to that for a minute. And I thought, okay, that kind of works. I, I can do that in hindsight. It's kind of hard to do that in foresight and the whole thing. And then I thought, what happens? What would happen if you projected that out just a little bit further? Don't go 10 years into your future and inform yourself what you should do today. Take yourself to the place where you stand before the throne of God. When you're in his presence, you finished your course here on earth. When all of the trials, the pain, the difficulty, the preparation of this life is behind you, and you're standing face to face with Jesus, what would that person say to inform who you are today as to how to live your life. And if you can do that, then that's going to be the straightest path to be right where you need to be. If you could go to the throne of grace and just fast forward there in your mind, what would the person, you, standing in front of Jesus, look and say to you today in giving you counsel? I know what the, the rich man from Luke chapter 10 would say. Remember the rich man and Lazarus? And the rich man who could care less about anybody else his whole life but himself. But then he came into the day of judgment. And what did he say? He said, please, Abraham, go and warn my brothers that they don't end up in this place of torment and burning. I know what he would say to himself if he could go back in time. He would say it wasn't worth it to just live in self-indulgence my whole life. Couldn't go back and do that, though. He would say, get saved. Give your life to Jesus Christ. It's not worth it to live for the world. What would the one say who worried their life away? They spent their entire life anxious and worried about how things were going to work out, if things were going to work out. If that person could be in the presence of Jesus and then look back and speak into the life, that same life, what would they say? They'd say, relax. God's got it. He already knows what he's doing in your life. He's already seen these days. His thoughts towards you are more in number than the grains of sand that are on the seashore. Relax. Don't worry about your life. What about the one who buried their talent? Who had a gift, a calling, potential from God, but they wasted it and they squandered it away. What would they say before the throne of God to the version of themselves today? They would say, listen, you get one life. Live it. Don't be afraid. Live. What about the one who lived in earthly pursuit and in compromise? They would look back and say, don't waste your life. You're wasting your life right now living for what? Things that can't profit, things that are of no value, Pleasure that is fleeting and gone, but then what? It's over. What about the person who lived their life crippled in fear? They'd look back and they'd realize, I wasted my entire life fearful, 
thinking I'm not going to make it? Am I going to waste my life? Am I going to waste my time? You know what they would say? They would say, listen, he that spared not his own son, but freely gave him up for us all, how much more shall he not now with him also freely give us all things? Don't be afraid. Don't live in fear. You're more than conquerors through him that loved you. What about the one who's sick? What about the one who's being tested, the one who's going through a trial today and wondering, God, are you here? Are you with me? Why this pain? Why am I going through this difficulty? The person before the throne would look back and say, hey, hang in there. It's worth it. Romans 8.18, Paul said, for the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Again, that same verse, 2 Corinthians 4.17, Paul says that our light affliction which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Listen, you're going through pain today, but it's preparation for the glory that's coming tomorrow. Hang in there. Hold fast. Church, Solomon's exhortation, his answer to the question, is there life before death? Is there purpose and meaning behind my existence? It's an overwhelming and emphatic yes. But where you find that life and that purpose makes all the difference. Because you can look for it under the sun, and you can wander and flounder. You can be bruised, beaten, and sunburned with cynicism. Or you can look over the sun, or better yet, to the sun, the Son of Man, the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And in Him find that all purpose and all of life is there. And sense is found there for everything that we go through and for every reason. Oh, Father, we thank you tonight, Lord, as we conclude and we come to the end of this book. And we thank you, Father, for the way that you make sense of the things in life that are so mysterious and so beyond our finding out. And Lord, tonight I just pray for my brothers, my sisters, for us that are here. I pray, Father, that you would help us, Lord to see you more clearly, to walk with you more closely, to walk in your truth. We thank you, Lord, for the way that you've spoken to us over these weeks. We ask, Lord, that you take these concepts, these things, that you'd make them life to us. Lord, we need you, we thank you, and we trust you. So be with your people, be with your church. Father, help us. Help us to see ourselves at the finish line. And help us to walk the straight line as we go. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand. Thanks for joining us for the Pastor Nick Santo podcast. To regularly receive these teachings, be sure to subscribe so that you can get it automatically when it's released. If you find this material helpful, please share it and help us get the message of Jesus out to others. We also appreciate your feedback. So if you would, leave a review in iTunes or email us at pastor.nickpc at gmail.com. Until next time, may you continue to love, learn, and live the way of Jesus.